0: I think the film really makes you understand why that's so, why he just can't let it go. Yes. And I think that's at the core of it is he's just, he's not, you know, a cop who is is doing this because it's his job and he feels some sort of calling to it. He's not even the reporter covering news. He's just like a guy who likes puzzles, who you know, for whatever reason, I think a mixture of, of circumstance and kismet and also probably looking for something, he stumbles into this case that he just can't let go of. Mm. And you, you understand why. And it's, it's I think, I, I've i tried showing this movie to friends who I think didn't really love it. And, and perhaps part of that is they're just not as into like three hour slow films. But I think- <laughs> This is a film that I think truly justifies its runtime because it has to be. You cannot tell this story in 90 minutes. You just can't. You need to sit there and sit with it and watch it all unfold and and understand and feel the passage of time to really, I think, appreciate the devotion.
1: Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Grace Smith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt and starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host Blake Howard and that introduction was writer and film critic at Film School Rejects, Anna Swanson. Joining me today to talk about one of the most disturbing death scenes in cinema, a post-production wrangler, writer at the film stage and producer of the B-Side podcast, Connor O'Donnell.
2: This movie is just one of those movies that it, it's so engrossing that while you're watching it, doesn't matter if it's the first time, fifth time, fiftieth time. The minute it ends, or maybe while it's going on, you're like, "Is this maybe the greatest movie ever made?"
1: And his co-host on the B Side podcast, co-founder of the Film Stage and filmmaker Dan Mecca.
3: When I rewatch this movie, I I struggle to watch the murder scenes. I like I I kind of go like, "Ooh, maybe ten seconds, ten seconds, ten seconds."
4: Like
1: writer and film and book critic. Bill Ryan.
4: I have not grown sick of it. It's easily for me the best movie that Fincher's ever made. You know, it's such a cliche about that movie or to say, you know, the three best, at least American films, just to be narrow minded about it. But the three best American films are No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood and Zodiac, but I can't help it. <laughs> and that's it, it, it's not a contest for me.
1: Podcast producer, co-host of Uberbusters podcast, Emmy nominated filmmaker, Liam Billingham
5: you know it, it sort of covers this whole span but the movie you're being set up for is this kind of like fast-paced kind of in some ways zippy newspaper movie <laughs> and that of course is not in some ways that is the movie that you get and in other ways it's not the movie that you get
1: feature film editor and editorial consultant with credits that include david finch's gone girl and deadpool vashi Mansky
6: it has the rare honor of being one of those films that i feel we share and a lot of the other people share where you want to revisit it because of so many components and element, elements of it. And the, one of the top ones being the performances. Like, I love the characters and following them. Like, it's just for me, it was another level and it was so well executed. I was just totally wrapped up in it.
1: Theatre director, playwright, film critic and host of the incredible Disney Ink and Paint podcast, Daniel Lamon.
7: The thing that links up his his depiction of serial killers is that none of them are sensational. Mm. Not like they're sensational in the fact that since Fincher inherently is a sensational filmmaker because he's sensationally good at it. And like (laughs) the spectacle is always there because you're just like dazzled by his artistry. But what he's showing you of these people is not, that they're special it's that they're not special and that that's the horror
1: and returning our film critic at the ringer cinemascope author of essential movie books the coen brothers this book really ties the films together and the recently released paul thomas anderson masterworks adam Nayman, as well as filmmaker and screenwriter of rounders the girlfriend experience oceans 13 and co-creator and showrunner billions brian koppelman this is our third episode pisces part one and the theme of this episode is almost famous we return to zodiac on the precipice of the myth for fincher this film has always been less of a crime story or a serial killer story it's a newspaper story the zodiac letters and their relationship with san francisco and the san francisco chronicle are the heart of everything and so it goes we have a seismic decision to make to publish will cause a tsunami so let's get to the scene as we left, Graysmith's scribbled version of the cipher has captured his attention and his imagination. As he's lying on his desk, it really is a kind of hypnotic state. It's speaking to him in a way that ultimately is extremely hard to qualify in words. One can't really say that you're in love with the thing that obsesses you, but there's a chemical reaction of attraction.
8: Robert, we need the cartoon.
1: Oh. 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 The press playing. deadline looms. And other papers are going with the story. The newspaper, as my previous show, All the President's Minutes, continued to reinforce, demonstrated something so genius in its practicality. It has been curated for your focus, to prioritise what those editorial forces determined to be the most vitally important for their readers. Right now, we've let the reader determine the most important article. In the sick, parasitic symbiosis, clickbait, inflammatory titled pieces aimed to capture your eyes with the promise of a derisive opinion, how much does this thinking plague a media so hell-bent on advertising dollars? If it bleeds, it leads. You're not finished? No, I'm finished, Carol, I'm finished.
0: <laughs> Terry's still here. Really? The first edition is off the floor in 10, Charles.
9: Uh, give us a sec. Okay, replay. We'll go on page page four.
1: The competitive edge in the discussion about the placement of this totem of culture is really kind of wonderful. The thought that in partnership with other recipients of letters that they would publish and choose that it's not the most important thing for their readers ensures that they continue to foster the trust and the allegiance of their circulation. Once the decision is made and assembled stories are locked and loaded ready to print there's an incredible exchange.
6: What do you say 20 bucks whoever cracks the psycho's name?
1: He won't give his name. It's an outburst in the context of who Graysmith is, but in the context of the world, it's a real expression of internal monologue, escaping your lips before you have control or ability to hold it in. It's why Austin Powers' How do I tell them I have no inner monologue? Line is so perfect. There are many times in life you wish that short circuit in your brain had diverted a vocal thought into a private one. Such is the effect of this obsession. Graysmith cannot help himself. The editorial team exit... And at that time, despite the commotion that this letter has caused for the day, it becomes relegated to yet another excuse for the journalist to head to their nearest watering hole and drown out the news noise of the day.
6: Morty's? Anyone? Where I'm heading. All right.
1: Here's Liam Billingham and I talking about Morty's.
5: At the paper, there's a great moment a little later in the film where he walks by, his, walks by Morty's. Yes. And uh, De-, De Niro... <laughs> Downey Jr. is imagine Paul Avery. Imagine Robert De Niro is Paul Avery. That would be a young, <laughs> De,
1: Niro. young De Niro, wiry De Niro, maybe.
5: Yeah, you can say that. Paul, oh, what are you reading? Book about metals. Talk about metals.
1: <laughs> 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 hey, Graysmith, what do you care about what I'm reading or what I do?
5: <laughs> what are you doing? You're, lo- you're looming. We talked about this. <laughs> we talked about this. But- he sort of he walks by Morty's and he looks in and and and, and um, Downey Jr. is lighting the. I love a pre-Iron Man Robert Downey Jr. By the mm. way, this movie, mm. much as I enjoy some of those Marvel films, makes me wish for a different career path for that guy. No, no shade to. A um, very enjoy. He's incredible as Tony Stark, but I, I really wish we got something different from him the last ten years in some ways. But he's lighting that that piece of paper on fire and like it's just. One of the reasons that I think Gray Smith becomes obsessed with the Zodiac is to make friends at the newspaper. Because he's constantly <laughs> being told, like, hey, don't you have a deadline? Hey, give us a minute. Hey, you're, you shouldn't be in this meeting. Hey, like, why is the cartoonist in here? Hey, who cares? <laughs> and he uses his obsessiveness and his interest in puzzles to get close to people. Morty's? Anyone?
4: Where I'm heading. All right.
1: Grace's obsession is brimming. The honeymoon period with this cipher has emboldened him. He stalked to the door at Morty's and hovers to consider the price of his entry. His previous nine months spent on the fringes of the paper's central clique mean nothing in this moment. He almost imposes himself into this dialogue to get another dose of discussing this unnamed madman. With dark walls and light at the centre, paints a crude cinematic Rembrandt. As we see Avery holding court, lighting a cigarette with a dollar bill, he dissuades himself. Of being now it's all beautiful obsessive process a photographer at the paper sets up to immortalize these words there are a million things in the life of this photographer that have required pristine clinical pictures to translate to the paper and today he's about to immortalize an icon and he has no idea the mirror image appears in the viewfinder the final loud and glorious click a closed shutter ...and an open door. Grace Smith arrives home with his son and we're back to this balancing acts. Under the guise of taking his son to the library or to a bookstore for an outing, Grace Smith returns. We assume that Graysmith is back with his son, but the events of the day may not have tattooed on his consciousness. Grab your book. We're wrong. It has a dual impact. In some ways, it's what we yearn for. An obsessive character at the heart of this tale that's been bit by the very same bug that we have been. However, we begin to lay the groundwork to see that he's a guy with a deep flaw that's going to imprint his children. So much of the rest of his life, his children are going to associate his positives, work ethic, morality, determination, with absence, distraction, and perhaps even negligence. It begins in this moment. As he approaches the corkboard walls of his apartment, the workbench for ideas, concepts, successful pieces that continue to drum up the muse in his output, he immediately instructs his son to jump into his pajamas.
3: Now go get your jammies on.
1: He approaches his wall of ideas and inspiration and removes all of his previous work. He anoints the cipher to dead centre. The bullseye on the walls, the recent collection of code-breaking instructional book on his workbench, and he's ready to get to it. Right now it's consuming one tiny segment, a miniature surface in the apartment, before it will ultimately infect his mind, his life, his vocation. Then we arrive at an elongated sight gag. Alright people, listen up. The
7: cipher is broken into three sections. Each with eight lines, seventeen symbols. No breaks between the symbols, denoting different words. No numbers or clues to
5: substitution keys. And you got symbols from at least seven different sources: Greek, Morse code, maybe semaphore, weather symbols, astrological signs.
1: Naval intelligence, the CIA, FBI are all beginning to try their hand at what, at face value, looks to be a complicated cipher. Fincher also confessed that the original letter sat with only like one or two people at each of these institutions, but. He found it more romantic and actually better for the psych gag to have more numbers of government employees coming together. And this is where we land in the breakfast nook of a couple of teachers. Hey, take a gander at this code thing.
3: Okay. You want to give it a go?
1: It's really the analog crowdsourcing.
6: Guy used to sit there Was a great cartoonist, Bob Bastian. Now he's on pump of television. Paul Avery.
1: He's Connor O'Donnell and Dan Mecker and myself talking about Robert Downey Jr.
2: You could, and you could totally see, could you not just see Dustin Hoffman and all the president's men going, I cover Kami Vallejo? Yeah, I cover Kami Vallejo. <laughs> like, it's yeah. like, there,
3: there's so much to that, 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 yeah. Well, that has, has and and also, this is the obvious thing you think about when you talk about Paul Avery and, and Robert Downey Jr. Of course, is this is the end of Downey Jr. Before Marvel, mm-hmm. and so when you watch this movie, it's a bitter sweet kind of a thing because well, the
1: three leads of the movie are now Iron yeah. Man, Hulk, my- and Mysteria. My-
3: Mysteria, yeah. right? Yeah. I was thinking I couldn't, I like couldn't. <laughs> This rewatch, and I couldn't get my mind off of that. I was like, yeah. wow, yeah, that's right. And it's like, when he's like, hey, bullet. I'm like, oh yeah, wow, that was like a different time. Like
10: yeah. but, but um
3: it's it's bittersweet because look, it's it's not unlike anything, any other big character. You know, you know, Jack Sparrow, Johnny Depp, right? It's similar to that. It's like the character is great. I love the Tony Stark character. The first movie, Iron Man Three, there's moments, pop pop, pop, right? But as a as a as a in in the aggregate, you go, ah, you know, he so Downey Jr. who wasn't insurable in 02, and yeah. then and then and then was doing the shaggy dog in 06 because that paid the bills, which is fine, right? And then it, in betwixt that is like putting in poignant work and a guide to recognizing your saints, right? He's doing an underrated performance in the singing detective, right? Bob, you know, all these things. And this is like the piece de resistance. He's like in a Fincher movie playing the second, third lead, giving this like nuanced, you know, beautiful performance. And then little did we know, 13 months later, a little movie would come out and he'd be like, hey, so you know. No, I'm not going to make these anymore. Right, and the closest.
10: <laughs> speaking
3: of your your whole podcast empire, the closest we got was him. He was going to play Doc.
1: He was going and to play Aaron
3: Vice, which I I know we all. hair Vice is a well loved movie, but I stand by to this day. I I I just I would love. I really would have loved to have seen the RDJ. Dude,
1: I, yeah, I, I, agree, I agree. I agree. Robert with Downey that. Jr. with Paul Thomas Anderson. That sounds nice. it It sounds sounds nice amazing it It sounds sounds nice you don't have to say doc you just have to say (laughs) Paul thomas anderson it's true it's true usually pair paul thomas anderson with any actor and i'm like oh that sounds good right whatever that's gonna be i'm in fincher talks about casting robert Downey jr in the process he didn't want to create too many restraints and details for avery in fincher's mind he wanted robert Downey jr to bring as much of himself to avery as possible this movie needed the swagger, the ego, the impulsive nature, and the awareness that he's able to bring as an addict. He's right for the fall.
2: Yeah, and I think I think part of that obviously to your to your point, Blake, like speaks to where they take the Paul Avery character and how yeah. they need the Paul Avery character to function as it pertains to sort of a a you know, sort of a, a cautionary tale for Jake Gyllenhaal, right? Mm. The idea that just like you can either you can i if you can either potentially make it through all the way to the end of this thing and do what you have to do with it, right? Or you know you can kind of find a way out early, or you're Dave Toski or you're Robert Downey Jr., right? And you and you're and you're Paul Avery, and it's and your life somehow has been like destroyed. And even if that's not hundred percent correct in some capacity, um, you you know I for the purposes of this movie. I think that's as close to some kind of an emotional arc or an emotional dilemma that you're going to get because it's not a particularly particularly emotional movie, right? No. Um, so you, you, all you really have is sort of that innocent, sort of doe-eyed Jake Gyllenhaal making his way through hell uh, and, and trying to kind of navigate navigate it and make sense of all of it, right? While While he sees other people sort of escaping it or, or falling further in and just not quite making it out. And so I think I think that's the, that's the key thing to, I think, the treatment of the character, even if it's not sort of 100% true to
4: life.
3: Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, he is tapping into everything in this movie. I mean, that's what's interesting about it being one of the last, you know, pre-Marvel things that he did is it does feel like a culmination of the tools he had as a young actor that made him so lovable, and then the experience in his life that added to those tools, right? Add- additional tools in the bag where it becomes this kind of brilliant amalgamation of everything that then of course gets even highlighted further in the Tony Stark character, which has a lot of those elements as well, of course. But like, this is, I feel like your your critical pinnacle. And I think when we look back, you know, as we continue to look back with uh, with Downey Jr., will be a, a high water mark. You know, and I think speaking to the accuracy, I just want to say I find it funny that nobody <laughs> cares about the accuracy of Zodiac, including myself. And the mank of it all. <laughs> was, I, was so I, I was, I was so intense. I was waiting.
2: Just, I was waiting for you to bring this. Up.
3: Uh, well, I, we don't need to go on a tangent because I know people feel different ways about make it. it's fun. I just find it interesting. And I'm curious as time goes on, will, will those, not unlike zodiac clear narrative decisions to be like well we're gonna act like the pauline kale raising cane article is fact when of course we know it's not right if a choice like that as fincher made in Mank and his father jack fincher made of course like it, do do we care as much in 10 years and do we regard that movie as maybe better than it's regarded now and then the other part just to kind of parallel it and blake you said this there is without question it's two most personal movies Right? I mean, I mean, without question. It's, it's his father's screenplay and his upbringing, as you said.
6: Guy used to sit there with a great cartoonist, Bob Bastion. Now he's on pump of television. Paul Avery.
5: Uh, Robert Graceman? Mm-hmm. I've I've been here nine months.
1: Just as we think Avery barely registered that slip of the tongue in the preceding editorial get-together, he hasn't. And in fact, he's now fascinated with this young man. Avery is hard and cynical beneath his flamboyant exterior. Jake Gyllenhaal in many ways has the same naive, hopeful quality that Graysmith has at this time in his career. Even in the commentary of the film, Gyllenhaal remarks that he's not sure why Graysmith would have been allowed in the editorial scene. And Robert Downey Jr. responds, You're the lead.
6: You were right, by the way. You didn't give his name. Who cracked it? A history teacher and his wife, Salinas. I like killing people because
5: it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill something gives me the most thrilling experience it is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl the best part of it is that when i die i will be reborn in paradise then all that i have killed will become my slaves i will not give you my name because you will try to Slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife.
1: There's a stilted lack of performance in the precise and blunt delivery. It's robotic because the structure of the decoding is so raw. Avery puzzles over why Graysmith would read it aloud. He already knows that the killer's name is not contained within the note. Avery looks at Graysmith like he's from another planet, a strange specimen. There's such attention to detail in the construction of Avery's look. There's a beautiful symmetry between his eyebrows, facial hair, the tie tucked into his shirt. Self-preservation for someone working with any kind of large press machinery. In the commentary track, Vanderbilt talks about the comparison to All the President's Men and how it's a sub-movie. His definition is essentially that the process of All the President's Men, it's not really possible for you to consume the level of detail that's going to be processed by these characters in a single viewing. Instead, you know the characters are competent, and you eventually surrender to letting them do the thinking and the process for you. He thinks our friends
6: are a tad bit fucker in the head. I heard even sent Vallejo a code key. Just
1: help.
5: What is that at the bottom?
6: Leftovers. Maybe an anagram? <laughs> Does one do that. I like like
5: puzzles. I do them a lot.
6: How did you know he wasn't going to give his name?
5: Dangerous animal. Dangerous animal. Oh, what dangerous
1: animal? How do I know that? As Avery walks away from Graysmith, there's a satisfaction that feels twofold. Avery has sparked something in his strange little colleague, and is at the very least enamored in his early commitment and obsession with the emerging phenomenon. And simultaneously, and there's something about Robert Downey Jr. passing on the mantle, acknowledging a young buck, bringing his A-game in the tremendous stakes of this ambitious, Fincher-directed behemoth. This is going to rest squarely on his shoulders. As he walks away, he's giving a level of endorsement that's indescribable. It's a collision of styles. Robert Downey Jr. having a more malleable style early in his career, muting his reflexive charm. Then he moves towards an expression of the persona. oh Yes,
6: Tim. Editorial now. Very well. Another
9: letter, more of the same details about the murders. He taped a flashlight to the gun, that's how he hit him in the dark. And he
1: gave
6: himself a name.
1: And we'll be back after a short break and a message from our sponsors. When you go to the bathroom, you always close the door right behind you, right? Of course, you're not a savage. You don't want some random passerby looking in on you, so why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Creeps. Did you know that your internet service provider like Comcast or Verizon, if you're in the States, knows every single website you visit? And what's worse, they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you, put you in the crosshairs. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. I use ExpressVPN on all my devices. It works on everything, phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected, even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is...
8: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
1: Click one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wire, The Verge, and countless other publications. So if you're like me and believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash OHM today. If you want to support the show, we'd really appreciate it. Use your exclusive link. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash O-H-M as in one heat minute and you can get an extra three months for free. That's right. ExpressVPN.com dot com slash O-H-M. And now, back to Zodiac Chronicle.
6: He taped a
9: flashlight to the gun. That's how he hit him in the dark. And he gave himself a name.
1: Here's Daniel Lammon and I are talking about the modulation between light and dark in zodiac
7: well it's i mean it's the it's the thing that always another thing that i always find very funny whenever i rewatch it is we think of it as almost the the zodiac as this almost almost mythical object in cinema and yet it is tremendously entertaining and it is hysterically funny and i think that's what that shift because it's in that that first half an hour of zodiac is very much teaching you how you're supposed to watch it and you go from something that is as Nightmarish as that opening from literally the first frame—it's a nightmare. To then cut to a dream helicopter shot of San Francisco with a thumping Santana track, and the first zodiac letter line of dialogue is, um, "I swallowed it. Why? Because <laughs> it was minty. Oh, you shouldn't do that." Like, and the idea, the idea that this—I think it's—I think it's about keeping the audience in, because mm. it's one of those things where you know the, the opening is. In, you know, very arresting, deeply unsettling, and also quite confusing because he's throwing, as he does through the entire film, there are lots of incongruities to that opening murder that could unsettle an audience. But then to jump into this thrilling opening title sequence, which gives you exactly you know, tells you exactly what the time and place is. You know, you have a great look of the you know, the, the architecture and the look of San Francisco, the sounds of the late 1960s, and then to kind of go through a really beautiful introduction to every single one of the characters that we meet, particularly seeing it from Robert's perspective. And the fact that it's, you know, it's introducing humour, it's introducing light, it's introducing energy to it.
1: We're on the road with a beautiful young pair. In real life, this couple are actually not romantically involved, rather they were friends. Vincent confessed that they actually took liberties with some of the relationship for the dramatic sakes of the scene. There's this beautiful road trip moment where the breeze is in their hair. There's a vitality in their faces. There's future in their gazes and we're taken from their ride to this lakeside sanctuary. On a picnic blanket outstretched, the woman is nestled atop her tall and burly companion. Behind them, underneath the water, a flooded town. In the glorious magic hours of a summer afternoon, in the presence of a subterranean city, the subterranean force of Zodiac haunts. There's a moment of recognition that you can have when someone you love begins to lay out their favourite anecdote. You may have heard this thing many times before. It's almost lovably annoying. You know this used to be the town
9: of Monticello? But at some point, the county decided that the land would work better as a lake. So they flooded it. There's an entire...
0: Hidden city under the water. We were here last spring, remember?
9: Oh yeah.
1: The performance from Pell James' Cecilia Shepherd is pitch perfect. Her face is full of recognition, care, and knowing ribbing before she clocks the invading presence. There's a flutter, a shadow. The vantage towards the brush between the car and the road, a dark figure stands out.
8: Somebody
9: else is here. It is a public park. I
8: think he's watching
9: us. Well, we're very good looking.
1: The look on her face changes, becomes hard and frustrated. It's an invasion of their private, wholesome, intimate moment. There's something in the reptilian, instinctual, reactive segments of the brain that cut through any concept, polite, communal interaction and immediately register danger. There's a swelling, anxiety unfolding, as Brian Hartnell, played by Patrick Scott Lewis, tries to diminish the danger, which of course he would. She loses sight of him.
8: Where'd he go? Right behind that
9: tree. All right, so he's taking a leak.
1: There's this escalating panic that you experience in her expression. It's like a kettle boiling. Small bubbles, barely noticeable at first, before a steaming torrent. The worst possible fears are realised in this moment.
3: He's
8: coming towards us. Oh my god, he has a gun.
1: The Zodiac is there. Standing in the steamy dark disguise, it billows in the breeze. The lapping material is the only movement. His stillness forces you to simmer in your seat. The uncertainty is boundless. Your worst nightmare is happening.
9: Don't move. I want your money and your car keys. Okay. We're not going to do anything, okay? We're going to cooperate. Just tell me what you want us to do.
1: It's a standoff. The words that he's saying do not match his disguise. This is a man dressed with an executioner's anonymity, asking for their wallet and keys. On his hip is a long knife, and in his hand, an intimidating pistol. There's something transformative about the outfit, as you're beginning to focus on the whole figure, featuring the sign resplendently placed on his chest. There's also this fantasy recognition, in a world dominated by super characters, this mass vigilante is the most twisted expression of that notoriety. But as this is the last slash only documented time the Zodiac got all kitted up for this, it draws attention that he can't control, unlike the letters. Brian begins from a compliant place. If we do what this person wants, we're going to get out of here alive. In his mind, this is a strange theft. That's the end game. Hey.
9: You're welcome to everything I have. If there's anything else I could do for you, maybe I could write you a check. Okay, I could give you my phone
1: number. Cecilia's anxiety is now reflecting in a flexing and craning neck, a posture both rigid and twisting. Her instincts are spilling chemicals through her body to combat the inevitability of the signs. The negotiation continues. Fincher said that the fact-checking confusion was actually due to a script change. It was another opportunity for dramatic license and levity. A tonal stutter step for the truth to break the tension. And in fact, when Bryant Hartnell's family first saw the film, it actually broke the tension for them too.
9: You know, I might be able to help you. Y- even more than you might think.
0: He, he's a sociology major.
9: Pre-law. Excellent.
1: Here's Bill Ryan and I talking about this specific moment.
4: When he's trying to negotiate, this might be too too strong a, a phrase for what I'm trying to say, but in the interest of moving things along, without getting hung up on that, it almost seems like they're making fun of him. Yeah. And then he, he mentions, I, I, I can't remember exactly, he I think she says something about his degree and he yeah. corrects her. And it's yes. like a laugh. It's supposed to be a laugh. It is. And I I have never, I'll be honest with you, I've seen the movie a million times, I have never figured out, and I, maybe you have a theory, you probably do, what the idea behind that is. And I, I guess I could take a, a couple guesses, uh, but not ones that would necessarily convince me.
1: Here's Adam Naiman on how Zodiac corrupted pop culture irrevocably
10: the incredible imbrication of actually existing pop culture in and around the zodiac case i mean seven is a movie that builds off all of that stuff but it fictionalizes it and mythologizes it and it's like well uh, john doe's a bit like hannibal and he's a bit like patrick bateman but i mean in zodiac it's all proper names yeah it's uh It's uh, the movie of the most dangerous game. It's a premiere of Dirty Harry. It's Melvin Belli being on a Star Trek episode. It's all this stuff that I think adds to what I'm talking about, that baseline authenticity or veracity where you're like, these people live in a world where pop culture is actually part of the world. Yes. I think the Zodiac hijacks that part of the world along with everything else.
1: And so David Fincher, in a way, is hijacking pop culture that exists around the myths of Zodiac. A sociology major. Sound familiar? Come on. Here's the introduction of Harry Callahan's new partner in Don Siegel's Dirty Harry.
4: You from around
9: here? Yeah, but I went to school at San Jose State. Like Wall. Oh, uh, no, I boxed. Light heavy. Uh, just what I needed. as a college boy. You
4: haven't found one thing you like about me yet, have
9: you? Well, it's early yet. Get your degree? Sociology. Uh, sociology? Oh, you'll go far,
4: so if you live. I intend to. Inspector Callahan.
1: Bill Ryan and I continue.
4: The way it's shot, you know, obviously it would have happened in broad daylight, but there's something about seeing it that way that's very striking. And that frankly ridiculous costume that the <laughs> yes. Zodiac Killer wears. And they cut to that shot from basically their point of view um, from the ground. And you just see this big, heavy dude with this ridiculous but creepy costume walking toward them. And it's like, that's what they would have seen. There's nothing underlining it. It, it What's so awful about it is that's exactly probably what they saw. Yes. You know, there's no music sting. There's no anything. It's just here he's, come, he's walking out towards us. The other thing about that moment is had that been the first murder that you see, yeah, the fact that that's a, meant to, I say meant to, you know, kind of unsure of myself, because I'm not sure, even though the audience would perceive it as a moment to laugh, the idea that maybe there was a thought that from Fincher and Vanderbilt, well, we know what we're doing, but a laugh would be maybe bad, but it's the second murder. That you see yes. Um so it's not like the audience might think that this is something else might happen here you know they know that somebody's gonna be murdered now and so that laugh plays so weird
9: oh geez you yeah, know I'm sorry I don't know exactly where I put my keys they might be on the blanket or in okay? here's the keys Don't get up. I want her to tie you up.
1: The camera moves and this once picturesque scene is now framed by a dark, panted leg of the Zodiac, his belt threaded with restraints. The performance here from Pell James is outlandishly perfect. Her mouth contorts over the words. Panic, fear, they have physical symptoms. An emotional truth of so many of these small, essential, honourable moments happen because of the commitment to that reality.
9: I want her to tie you up. Okay,
1: as she returns to Brian. This is the first fleeting moment that Brian is even considering that this interaction has darker intent. For a split second, he starts to whisper at a time more loosely, and the Zodiac immediately spots it.
9: Don't get any ideas. I'm not. I killed a guard escaping from prison in Montana. I'm not doing anything, okay? I'm not afraid to kill again. Look away.
1: Here's Dan and Connor again describing... The hanukkah of it all
3: that there's a very hanukkah michael yeah. hanukkah nature to yes. that yeah. sequence because yeah. the hanukkah thing to your point uh earlier is is that exact thing funny games either of them right any yeah. of his movies really the the, sk- the what makes hanukkah like disturbing on like a deep emotional level is 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 exactly what you're talking about which is like it's just happening, and the camera has no opinion about it. and it's like,, yeah. watch it happen. And that murder in particular.
2: and it's not it's 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 interesting like your your point, Dan, about like the ca- the camera not having an opinion, right? because that's such an it was something that I was thinking about the way he constructs each of the murder scenes as mm. being distinct from each other.
9: What was the name of that prison? Hey, you said it was in Montana, right? I'm taking your car I'm going to Mexico. We didn't complain when you tied our hands. Okay, you have everything that I have. We have done everything that you've asked.
1: Once the Zodiac binds both parties to his specifications, Brian continues to maintain this steady disbelief. It's
9: okay. She tied you loose, didn't she? Right. Get on your stomach so I can tie your feet. Okay. It gets really cold out here at night. We could freeze.
1: Freezing is the worst-case scenario. Brian asks if the gun is loaded. There's a beautiful, subtle fish-eyed quality to the lens as the Zodiac indulges that the weapon is indeed freeze. loaded. Uh, oh.
9: Are okay, you all done? You know, just because people are going to ask, was that thing even loaded?
1: There's a mirror moment. At the introduction to the characters in their windswept exuberant perfection, they look at each other in the car. Now their faces against the picnic blanket. Cecilia's face demure but breathing heavy. Brian tries with futility to calm the situation. This is not their prophecy. As if by some damning karmic reflex, the gun is holstered and the knife unsheathed. Zodiac stabs the man furiously and randomly.
9: It's okay. This is all going
4: to be okay. Uh!
1: The screams from Cecilia enunciate Brian's agony. His groans are muffled by the blanket, and he screams a vicarious pain. He's a big man who cannot be handled. For her, as the Zodiac starts, the scene crescendos in horror, disturbance, and visceral stomach-churning impact. Zodiac skewers Cecilia's tiny form and spins her in a death roll rotisserie. It may be only seconds long before the camera retreats into position that passively observes the isolated island crime scene. And yet, Brian and Cecilia's screams linger over the edit and the terrain. Here's some thoughts on this scene from Vashi Nidomanski, Brian Koppelman, and Adam Naiman.
6: Yeah, it's, it's disturbing to say the least, and that obviously is the effect. I mean, between the car in the parking lot at the beginning and the lakeside murders, like that's just... It's all you almost I almost can't watch, or I know it's coming and I don't want to watch. I've already seen it. I'm like, what what's a worse feeling than being tied up on your belly and someone stands over you and just stabs you fifty times? Like, that's the worst thing I could, you know, one of the worst things I could think of, like, offenseless. That those
3: the way that he shot them, the sort of languid way in which he shoots those scenes, the slow, deliberate, sense that you can't escape them. He gives you a sense of how they're seductive to Zodiac. Uh, he gives you all of it. He gives you the horror of it, the wrongness of it. And I do think that because of the pace of it, is it, it hangs over the whole movie, even as the movie moves much more quickly, right? You go from that to the male coming in and, and then everything is like um, incredibly
10: fast, right?
3: Um, But yes, that stuff hangs over it,
10: just hangs over it. But I mean, out in the lake, it's more just um, experiential. It's like if you're in the middle of nowhere and someone else shows up, all of the safety nets and escape hatches and kind of expected exchange of the world kind of fall away. And what you're confronted with is not less scary for being so odd and kind of pathetic but more so because a guy who wears a a black hood and a sweater to walk around the lake on a sunny day is probably capable of of anything and you know i think and and i think that in that first scene the first victims because it's two murders of two couples right and in the first scene in the car i feel like uh Darlene Farn and Michael McGo are being elevated by the filmmaking strategically, I don't think irresponsibly, into mythic or archetypal figures. Again, they become Bonnie and Clyde. They become, I think, a symbol of something starting. The victims at the lake, uh are not really symbolic of anything. The, the Zodiac operates in the realm of symbol, both in real life and in the movie, and so he carves the thing into the police car and he leaves his signature and all that. But these guys are really just, you know, a boy and a girl or a, a man and a woman kind of out in the world and what radiates off the scene more than anything else. And it's a weird word to use, I know, but it's um, there's it an incredible sense of unfairness.
1: I don't know if I could ever say that we're spared the horror of the ending but the dose of horror took me to the limit of what I thought was possible and tolerable. At the conclusion, this crime rhymes with the previous one. Luckily, despite being horrendously injured, Brian is alive. An empty vehicle replaces one with a lifeless corpse in his first kill, but the vehicle is stained with a confident proclamation at the scene. This was all part of Zodiac's orchestration. While we look back from the vantage of many, many decades of the CSI effect, it's hard to imagine what solving crimes was like in 1969. No cameras, no metadata to track, disparate law enforcement agencies, a crime scene in a national park, the confidence that Zodiac could already whip up the region into a frenzy with his letters continue killing, and then claim it. Here's a final thought from Liam Billingham.
5: You know, the sequence at the lake, I think, um, I had to give a presentation in a sound design class in grad school, and I forgot about it. And the day of, about three hours before, I was like, oh, shit, today's my day. And I went into my locker, and I had the Zodiac DVD. And I was like, I'm going to talk about the scene and the like because I know it so so well. Like, <laughs> there's just these indelible. It's interesting that this movie is of uh, two things. I mean, it's many things, but two things that it most definitely is it's scenes of murder that are so staged with no sentiment. There's nothing sensational about the murders in this movie. So you have these very unsat sensationalized murders mixed with men in rooms not talking about how they
7: feel. <laughs> it's just an interesting. It's an interesting
5: statement on on modern life. And I I think that that might be why we come back to it, is it gives us a lot more than just a really great procedural, and it is an astonishing procedural.
1: the camera tracks around and sees the zodiac's signature on the car door it spells out something very clearly it's not simply the deed it's the hype that has been another episode of zodiac chronicle pisces part one be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes if you can't get enough Unplug zodiac sessions will be available exclusively on the one heat minute patreon that is linked in our show notes this episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. If you want to support us and buy some merch, the link to our merchandise is in our show notes. Until next time.
0: Good. Bye. Uh...